0: But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy, because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun
1: than should be legal.
2: Elliot, we're going to have a great show today, I have a feeling. You think? I think so. No girls, but we're going to have on two former Green Bay Packers, one in the Hall of Fame. I was going
0: to say, you were almost going to say pro football Hall of Famers, and you might be getting just a little bit ahead of yourself.
2: I have a feeling this other guy's going to go in. He deserves to go in. But again, we're going to have on Herb Adderley and Dave Robinson. Two guys who I never saw play, but I heard great things
0: about him. I did, and Dave Robinson should be in the Hall of Fame. People who can remember, people who've seen footage of those Packer teams from the 60s can attest Dave Robinson about it, as good as there was in the NFL in those days.
2: Let's get right to the interview we taped with Dave Robinson and Herb Adderley. So who did the Herb. bulk of the writing? You or uh, Herb, Dave?
3: Herb. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, when you're talking to one person, Herb Adderley, who has done more, seen more, and been involved more than anybody I know, he, he's a it's a great individual. He's got the heart, the size of uh, the Grand Canyon. He to he do anything with people. Got himself in trouble trying to help the rest of the league. I mean, you can't i can't say enough superlatives about Herb Bailey. I tell you, I, I call him brother because I—I had some brothers, and I feel Herb just like I feel close to Herb as did to my own brothers. Because he, he's a really great guy.
0: So, Dave, what, what did you do with the book then? If Herb's doing, yeah, if Herb's doing all the writing.
3: Well, I got a couple of chapters there, you yeah, know. Okay. Yeah, yeah my, my life wasn't quite as exciting, but it was. It was a good life. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't change it for all, all the money in the world. Wait, take that back. I wouldn't change it for one-fourth of all the money in the world. <laughs> so what's
2: what's the name of the book for our listeners?
1: It's well, called The Body's left, left Side. And we have to give Royce yeah. Boyle some credit, too, because he's also a co-author, right. and he put everything together for us. So the book is yeah. The Left Side, and the book came about because uh, I wanted to do a book alone and call it The Left Corner because that's my position, and then I started thinking, well, I didn't do it alone, so I approached Dave and Willie Davis because without them, I wouldn't have been successful on the left side. The defensive end and the linebacker meant more to me, along with Willie Wood, the great free safety, than anybody on the team. So I went to both Dave and Willie and with my idea of doing the book and calling it the left side, and they both agreed. But for some reason, Willie Davis decided to drop out and do his own book. So I told Dave, let's roll without him. And that's how it all came about.
0: So, Dave, who ended up with the better book, do you think?
1: Would it be uh, Willie and us?
3: And Willie and Herb and I?
0: Yeah.
3: You, you guys, I, well, I, you guys I'm, are I'm really. I'm, I'm biased. And and I think, really, if you're going gonna to buy one, I'd buy the left side. The big thing that what, what Herbert's is saying is, is that, you know, we, we were always together. Everything. And uh Royce Boyles, by the way, Royce Boyles and I have written a book together. So Royce did a lot of writing. He took he did a lot of interviews and this and put it down. He would he transcribed things and wrote it down. Uh, but uh so we worked with Royce. i worked with Royce before. And that's one reason. That's how Royce got involved, he was a godsend to us, he helped us a lot quite a bit. But Willie Davis's book is uh I'm not gonna say anything bad about it, but it doesn't have the doesn't have the that doesn't that's in the left side. It doesn't have the I hate to say it but controversy. It doesn't have a the insight that you're gonna get for reading the left side. The, the Inside about uh more than one team, Herb Alley played for Green Bay and for the the Dallas Cowboys. And what's interesting there is that Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry coached together in nineteen fifty eight. Nineteen fifty nine, Lombardi went to Green Bay, small northern town with no whites in it, no blacks in it, excuse me. And Landry went to a in 1960, next year went to Dallas, a large Southern town, with uh, a very few blacks on the team. And uh, they both, had, and this is on the turbulent 60s, and we touch on that how, how the 60s changed, and how each of the two coaches handled it, and and whether or not whether or not the way they handled it led to championships or not. You have to read the book to get the answer, but I think you can guess.
2: <laughs> Dave, you know what I found surprising? We interviewed Sam Huff last year. And Sam was on that 58 team that played against the Colts in the Super Bowl and lost. And he said...
0: It wasn't a Super Bowl then.
2: I mean, the, the, champi- the championship game. <laughs> and, what, and what he said was, we had a great offensive coordinator and a great defensive coordinator in Lombardi and Landry. And what do the Giants do when they need a new coach? They hire another an assistant coach and they let two future Hall of Famers go. And it's just truly amazing that the Giants owner the Mirrors, could be that dumb.
1: Well, they they hired Alex Sherman, you know, and and they said that uh, uh, Lombardi, you know, applied for the job, but they, for some reason, you know, bypassed him and decided to hire Alex Sherman and said, okay, we'll get Lombardi a job in Siberia. That's what they called Green Bay at the time and sent him up to Green Bay. I think they had only won maybe one or two games previous to Lombardi getting there. You know, in the
3: other book, we interviewed (laughs) Vince Jr., he said that Walter Meyer and Vince were very close. Always got together every time they went to the, in New York. But Walter Meyer, Marie told me one on one one time that Walter Meyer called Vince in his office and said, Vinny, I know what you're going to do." He says, uh, "He says, but I tell you what, New York City is not ready for an Italian head coach. So if I were you, I talked to a son. If I were you, take the job in Green Bay." And and, uh, and she said Vince, well, at that time never to lose to the New York Giants, and he never did. And that was, and that was the thing. and the other thing is, he talked to Alex Sherman, who was the next head coach, and he was, of course, and then Landry left. And, and in that game, says Cubs talking about, I don't know how true the story is. I've heard about three or four times from different places. But when they they received the kickoff in overtime, the Giants, they ran down the field and was fourth and one. And Lombardi told Jim Lee Howe, the head coach, he says, we should go for it. Any good team can make one yard. And Tom Landry said, the odds are against it. We should punt the ball and let my defense hold them. And Vince was adamant that they should go for it. Jim Lee Howe went with Landry. They punted the ball. Johnny Nance got the ball. Marched down the field, scored, and beat them. And Lombardi always felt that he was right. Now, you flash ahead another, what, 18, 19 years. All of a sudden, in 1967, January 31st, we're on the one-yard line, third and goal sixteen seconds ago on the game. We call timeout. Lombardi goes in and tells the what star to go for it. Across the field, Tom Landry, the guys from Dallas told me, uh, Mel Renford, was guys I said, Tom Landry told him, play the outside. The only play they can run is a bootleg or a pitch out uh, or option. Play. So they got have something where they can throw the ball to kill the clock. And so, and uh, some of the deep the defensive guys from Dallas were playing to the outside soft, which made our but the block a lot easier. And Pew who was trying to get outside to stop a sweep. It's just come red, up the middle. And we, uh, as you know, we made it. And Vince, the felt vindicated at that moment when he got to they beat the Dallas Cowboys, cut the middle. And that's how it is. Now, this goes back. One of my greatest plays was the year before down in Dallas when they had fourth and two with 52 seconds. And what did he run? He ran a bootleg by top, but with, uh, Don Meredith and, uh, some situation there. But thank God Meredith was slow and that caught him and it was no problem. But uh, that's how we that's how we maintain our, our lead at 34-27 and won the game which let's go to Super Bowl 1. So I think Vince was very, very happy with those two victories because it proved his point to Tom Landry.
1: Well, you know, Landry made a lot of coaching decisions that cost the Cowboys games not only with his play calling but also with the personnel. Because if you remember, Dave, in the Cotton Bowl in the game you're talking about, Don Perkins was running like Jim Brown. We couldn't stop right. Perkins. Perkins was running inside the tackles. He didn't come mm-hmm. around our side, Dave. He mm-hmm. was running inside the tackles, and he got the ball down to the 20-yard line, and all of a sudden, Landry decided to take Perkins out of the game and put Dan Reeves in. And He's Reeves running. had two bad knees, and I could walk faster than Reeves could run. <laughs> and, Reeves, and, and then all of a sudden, Landry changed his game plan and started throwing the ball instead of running. If Perkins had stayed there, I'm guarantee you that game would have been tied. We went in overtime. It might have been a different outcome. But because of Landy's coaching decisions and his personnel moves, it cost them games before I got there, and it cost them games after I got there. I saw it firsthand.
0: Now, Dave, after that Ice Bowl victory, what was Lombardi like in the locker room?
3: (laughs) I'll tell you what. It was was pure euphoria because, like I said, this Lombardi, when I got there in 1963, uh, Vince this I've been rooting out a lot of positions at the All Star game, at defensive end, offensive end, and finally linebacker. When I got there, he felt obligated to tell me that the problem was he says, Phil and I thought you'd be a great linebacker. But he said, we have just won 61 and 62. Our goal is to win three consecutive world championships. No one has, ever, no one has done it since the playoff system was initiated. And he said, I don't want any distractions, and you'll be the first black linebacker in the National Football League. So I don't want we don't want any newspaper articles or anything else. Anybody asked you about what he did, he said, tell him to see me. I told Bud to see Vincent. That was it. But that's what so So now when 66, 65, 66, when he won in 67, this was like Vincent's golden life. He won a third consecutive world championship. How, what, how would you feel if your golden life was to win an Emmy or something for, for radio and all of a sudden you got it not once not twice, but three years in a row. That's how Vince Lombardi felt about winning three consecutive World Championships. And I'll tell you something: we were all so close to our, close to our coach that if he was happy, we were ecstatic. He
1: yeah, did. It. He did. First, a... Go ahead, Herb. The first time that Dave met Lombardi was after the All Star game when the All Stars played against the Pro Champions in Soldier Field. When Dave was on the champ on that team that beat us in that game. And Lombardi was livid, man. And Dave had time to take a shower, get dressed, and come over to our locker room. And he was feeling good with a big grin on his face coming in the locker room. Mm -hmm. And he heard Lombardi chewing us out. We didn't even have time to take our pads and stuff (laughs) off because of Lombardi chewing us out behind that game. And this went on for about 45 minutes. And I don't know what Dave was thinking when he came in there, but that was his first time encounter with Lombardi.
2: (laughs) Herb, Herb, how did you lose... To college All-Stars. Were you taking them for granted? Or? Oh,
3: oh. <laughs>
1: Well, they had they had some good. They had a good team. They had some, some great players, college players on that team. That's right. I don't think we took anybody for granted. It was just a case of them, you know, making some good plays. And uh, I guess you could say they won the game, so maybe they outplayed us. And I remember that well, you... Richter, who was Dave's roommate, uh, he had a big game. And I think uh, right. Van Der Kellen, uh, those guys were from yeah. Wisconsin, too.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I'll tell you that's from the other side of it, we never thought we stood a chance. It wasn't a locker room, it was 10 10 at halftime. But you have to remember that Nishki didn't play at all. They had Urban Henry out there at that defensive end that was kind of weak. Urban Henry was not the greatest defensive end in the world. And and on top of that, Otto Graham did some things that, that in the coaching clinic would say never do. Like we went for it on fourth down on our own 30 yard line or something like that. Crazy moves like that. And he could say, but see, everybody expecting to lose. And Otto Graham just made calls that were ridiculous calls, and we were lucky enough that they break. And I think half the time we ran the calls, the Packers up was going to be a fake. <laughs> we ran to play. You know? It was just weird. It just wanted to, it's got to be – everything's got to fall in place for the All-Stars to win. And later, Vince told me, personally, says, if I could have got that All-Star team, the whole team as it was, and kept them together, I could win a championship in three years with them. And I said, oh, I, don't I just I – but you no, know, and after later – well, I knew Vince and how he coached and what he did. I believe him now. I believed him back in 1967. I knew that Vince if he had kept that team together, It was a great team. I mean, guys that that team have started all over the league, uh-huh. and, uh, both AFL and NFL. And if he could got them together and trained them, I think he could have won a championship with that team.
0: Now, Herb, if Vince Lombardi was so smart, how come it took him a while to get you, you know, out of the back, the offensive backfield, into the defensive backfield?
1: <laughs> Well, the only reason I got into the defensive backfield, because when I was drafted out of Michigan State, I was the number one draft choice as a running back, or All Big Ten running back. But when I got there, obviously Paul Horning, Hall of Famer, Jim Taylor, Hall of Famer. The year before, he drafted Tom Moore out of Vanderbilt, number one draft choice running back. The year I got there, Elijah Pitts came along with me. So we had, you know, four or five running backs. Luke Carpenter was there, four or five or six running backs. And uh, I knew my chances was almost nil, and I played all special teams uh, and played behind Boy Dollars, wide receiver and then running back a little bit too, practicing. But in Detroit, Thanksgiving Day, my rookie year, Hank Grimminger got hurt in the second quarter. And at halftime, Lombardi said we got an emergency situation and we're going to put our best athlete out to play the left corner. So I'm sitting there on the bench and just thinking about running the kickoff back in the second half. He comes over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, Herb, just do the best you can. So I look at him and I said, who, me? He said, yeah. (laughs) And by that time, everybody was getting up, walking out of the locker room for the second half of the game. I didn't even have time to find my helmet. You know, I was so nervous and everything, I had to go back and get my helmet to take out. So I had no practice, never practiced position, and I ended up intercepting a pass and setting up the winning touchdown. I guess that's when he thought that I could play uh, defense, because I could play both sides of the ball. And I went right back to offense. I never, never played another down on defense until the championship game when we beat New York Giants 37 to nothing. The last two minutes, he told me again, he should go out there for Jesse Whittington. And this was on the right corner. And I intercepted a pass. The only two times I played as a defensive back, I intercepted a pass. So I guess he decided in 62 that he switched me over.
2: You were a smart player, uh, Herb, yeah. because the Bears tried to – make Devin Hester a cornerback, a wide receiver,
1: he still can't <laughs> grasp it. <laughs> well, you know, it takes uh, a lot of athletic ability. You know, I had guys get athletic ability, which, you know, I played four sports in high school. Basketball was my favorite sport. So it wasn't any problem for me to make the adjustment. All I had to do was learn how to tackle.
3: Now, Herb. You know, I'll tell you one thing. He mentioned Hester. He's one great football player, and so a lot of most playing today. But one thing you got to remember is, that when there was, uh, there were only 14, 12 teams went to 14 later on, 12 teams in the league. See, then they, they only took the draft choices and, uh, the top 20 guys and they only had like 36 men on the team. My rookie, they went to 38. So There's only 38 men on per team, only 14 teams. You could take the cream of the crop and get them into the league. Now, now when you got 32 teams and you got 53 men per team, you got to not only take the cream of the crop. You got to go down a little deeper. And the problem is, you don't get ball players who are well-rounded, who are like Herbert, that played four sports. Herbert could have played. He, I think he could have been an All-Pro running back or a defensive back. Thank God he was was my corner. I love that. But that type of ball player is hard to come by now, because there's so many specialists, and the guys they start specializing in high school and they only know one phase of the game. And Herbert, we he played. We in college, we had to go both ways, offense and defense. You had to learn both both positions. The college kids today—they're either offensive or defensive. Some can switch over, but when they do, they have to learn all over again. It was a whole different time, a whole different era. I think it was—I think it was a golden age of football, really. And I'm just happy to have played during that time. And and, and I tell you, I had the same experience Herb did. When I came up, I was—I was the fourth linebacker, the one, that, the swing man. And so Nisky broke his arm. Like I always tell Nisky, bad break for you, good break for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I started. And then uh, and and that was it. See, it was just it was just you just you know. And the it, it Green Bay Packers were a great team. I, I, I know I'm talking too long. I'll say one last thing. When I was in college, there's an article in Sports Illustrated by Dan Curry about you, the Key in, in pro football. And I read it, and I didn't really understand what Key was in co- college, because I went to Penn State, great school, but they hadn't really taught me the keys. And I took that book, and I carried it with me for six, seven, eight weeks. I was a Dan Curry idol. I Idolized Dan Curry. I walk on the field the first day, and who's who's the starting left linebacker for the Green Bay Packers the team? I got to try and get try to win position with, but Dan Curry. <laughs> and it's, so that's the thing. That team was so good. So many good ball players. You came in as a rookie. You knew you had to be able to do everything. And and one last story. I was going along fine my rookie year. I was number one draft choice, and uh, my wife was home pregnant with twins. And I was laughing one day about how Jerry Kramer, who was kicking off, couldn't get the ball past the twenty. And someone told Vince that I kicked off at Penn State. He came to me, put his arm on my shoulder, and says, "I hear you kicked off at Penn State." I said, "Yes, sir." He said, "Why don't you kick it off here?" I said, "Well, Coach, I'm I'm playing a new position, linebacker, and I'm supposed to play an offensive defense in college. And I want to practice up hard and study my book, and I want to be the best linebacker in the National Football League." He said, "Well, son," he says, "your best chance to make this team is as a kicker." And I stayed out 45 minutes, in that night kicking, and I and I kicked off played up until the because uh, uh, Horny was gone a year, so we had never kickoff man. And I kicked that into that 64 until I got hurt. But yeah, you know. but that's how I was. There was just great men in every position, and you if you just weren't multi You didn't have more than one talent. You weren't going to make the Green Bay
1: Packers.
0: Now Herb, how does a Philly guy end up at Michigan State playing for Duffy Doherty?
1: Uh, number one, Clarence Peaks. Was, was like my idol when I was in high school. And uh, I'd only played two years of football in high school because I played basketball. Like I said, it was my favorite sport. ended up playing football for a couple of years. And my high school coach said, hey, look, you're going to have the ability to go to the big-time school and maybe get yourself a scholarship. And he started asking me during my senior year where I want to go. And I told him about Clarence Peaks in Michigan State. So he said, well, look, uh, I know Duffy Doherty. He knew Duffy from some coaching clinics and stuff that they were having around the country. And he says, the only thing I can do is give him a call and let him know I got a blue-chip ball player and see what he said. And that's how the whole thing started. I wanted to go to Michigan State because of Clarence Peak, and that's where the number 26 originated. You know, he was my idol. When I got there, he met me at the airport, showed me around. He was a senior going out. In fact, he was the number one draft choice of the Philadelphia Eagles in my hometown. So when I got to Michigan State, for some reason, they gave me 26 and said, hey, if you can emulate Clarence Speaks, he said, you're going to be a, a, a great player. And that's how the whole thing started. And how I got to Michigan State, I went on as a walk-on. I had to make the team. I didn't get a scholarship.
2: Dave, you mentioned that you were the first black starting linebacker in the NFL. I never realized outside, that. Outside, outside linebacker.
3: Outside right. linebacker. Outside right? linebacker, yeah. Well, there, there, was was... On the either, Willie. there was nothing inside either, Willie. There was the inside either. In the NFL, had some, but there was nothing in the NFL.
2: Right, because th- Willie Neer
3: was younger than he came in after I did.
2: Right, Willie Neer was the first starting middle linebacker. Right, was that hard, or what was the reason? Did they think
3: that black
2: athletes weren't smart enough to play linebacker?
3: Exactly right. That was a, that was a, that was the more of the time, that's they thought. And the, and the, and now Bobby Bell and I get the same. year. He was went to the other league, of course. Bobby did. He went to the AFL. See, the AFL was a funny league. The AFL brought more black ball players in because I, I, I don't I don't necessarily believe it's true, but the NFL had sucked up all the cream of the crop, all the good white ball players in the country, just about. And the only white ball players they were getting in the AFL were guys who had played out the, their career was over, guys who were cut by the NFL team. They picked off off the cut list. But the black ball player, that whole that whole traditional black college university, all the leagues down the south, the Grambling, the, the Florida A and M's, and the North Carolina, and, and, and all those schools, that was on tap talent. And the AFL, who needed ball players badly. They went down and got that, and so they were really the pioneers in, in fully integrating the, the, the game of football. And uh, that, But there were none in the NFL, and, and Vince didn't want, to, didn't want to make an issue. I'll tell you one thing else. I'll tell you, Herb Cheney is the first-round draft choice, and I was the first-round draft choice. Herb Alley was the first black African-American man to be drafted in the first round by the Green Bay Packers ever, and I was the second. And that, that shows how, the, how things have changed. Now, as Now, well, it's just so different. Everybody knows how how the league is now, you know, but it was was amazing, you
0: know. Now, Herb, what was the transition like having grown up in Philadelphia, going to Michigan State, and finding yourself in Green Bay, Wisconsin?
1: Well, uh, number one, I went to all integrated schools in Philly. Elementary school, Fittler Elementary School, it was all integrated, black and white, Chinese, you name it, Asian, I went to Roosevelt Junior High School. It was the same way. Uh, Integrated uh, boys, white girls, black girls, boys and girls, never any problems. And then I attended an all-boys high school in Philly, Northeast High School. And we had a variety of ethnic groups, Asians. We had Ukrainians on the soccer team, uh, black, white. There were more white players on the football team than black. Uh, Basketball was black and white. So I had no problem then going to Michigan State. Michigan State had probably more black All-Americans than any school in the country. I know most schools in the Big Ten. I mean, they had Don Coleman, Clarence Peaks, Leroy Bolden, just to name a few, uh, Ellis Duckett, uh, uh, Jim Ellis. All these guys were All-American, and they had a chance to play because Michigan State didn't go for no you know, segregation. They wanted to play the best ball players.
2: Bubba Smith later on?
1: Well, Bubba Smith was after me. He came, yeah, Bubba was, uh, I think, 65. They had three guys on there with number one draft choices. Gene Washington, Bubba Smith, and Clinton Jones, and George Webster. So they had four guys number one choices on that team. But anyway, you know, getting there, and the first time I experienced uh, segregation, really, after coming out of Philly, was in East Lansing, Michigan, because they didn't allow black people to live in East Lansing. All the black people that lived off campus had to live 10 miles down the road in Lansing, which is the state capital, And that included the professors at Michigan State University also. So in I think it was like 1959, the NAACP started picketing and everything, but eventually it got to be okay. So my senior year, I lived uh, right on the street, Grand River Avenue where in East Lansing, where the school's located. So things changed. Now I get to Green Bay, it's all white town, you know, so it wasn't a really big deal because... That's the way East Lansing was when I got there. And it was fewer people in East Lansing than the 68,000 people in Green Bay. <clears throat> so I really didn't have to make no adjustment because uh, small-town blues didn't get me, coming from Philly with millions of people, and then going to East Lansing with small town. So Green Bay was easy for me to make the adjustment.
0: How, what, what sort of social life could you have, though?
1: Well, it wasn't any social life at all in Green Bay. You know, the social life in, in at Michigan State because they had, you know, a— uh, quite a few black co so it wasn't any problem. But in Green Bay, you know, being single, well, the social life was just socializing with the guys or, you know, just going out to speeds or the Tropicana or my brother's place and having a Budweiser or whatever your adult the beverage of your choice. And uh, we had to drive 112 miles to get a haircut to Milwaukee because Lombardi didn't allow any facial hair or long hair, black or white. So, you know, we had to keep ourselves, uh, you know, in, in good physical shape and uh, looking well and bought suit and tie on the road all the time. And uh, that's where it was. Were you
2: guys basically warned or advised to stay away from the white women?
1: No, nobody ever said anything to me about that. And uh, obviously, you know, being out and around in restaurants or wherever with a small town, well, you know, people going to come over and say hello, asking for other grants and so forth and so on. So no one ever came to me and said, uh, you know, we don't want you dating white women. We don't want you talking to white women. That never happened the whole time I was there for nine years.
3: You know what? Uh, the, you know, when you said ask that question, you didn't understand. I, I think understand Vince Vardy. It was just almost the opposite situation. Uh, my roommate was my roommate Lon Aldridge. had come from Utah State. At Utah State, he started dating a Mormon girl who happened to be white. Of course, all Mormons are so white in those days. <laughs> and they were dating, and they were dating, and they and uh, they wanted to get married. Her family was going to disinherit her, everything else. And the word got out that uh, he and her wanted to get married. No, what happened was that someone called. Or, it, see, the players never us a hard time, was usually the wiser players. And one of them got back to Vince that Vince that he was bringing this white woman to Green Bay and cohabitating with her. And Vince called him in. Lionel said Vince called him in. The answer said. What's your intentions? He said, I'd like to marry He said, well, to marry make her, make her an honest woman with He said, well, I don't know if you've ever read the Cookie Gilchrist story. True or not, the rumor that when all black ball players in the league heard about Cookie Gilchrist was a great running back, but he was dating a white girl, married to I'm not sure what it was, and he was blackballed out of the league, had to go to Canada where he played his best football. But even in the later years when he came back with the Buffalo Bills, he was still good enough to make the all-AFL team. And he said, I'm, I don't want to get blackballed. And Vince told me and if well, you marry her and make a, a honest woman out of her, let me take care of that. And that's when they said, in our, in our first book, Vicky tells a story that that Pete uh, Rozelle came all the way to Green Bay to tell Vince, do not let this happen. Do not let, there was no white-black marriage he thought in the league. And, uh, and Vince told Pete Rozelle, said, you run the NFL and I run the, and I run the Green Bay Packers. And Lionel and Vicky were married. And uh, we, for the book, was trying to research to find there were any other black-white marriages, and we think there were some, but nobody who was married to a white woman, and knew, no matter what the team, brought his wife to camp. So he, there was just you have to understand, we're talking about pre-civil rights. The civil rights act was 1964, but Herb's talking about you could in state places, people denied you rooms in Green Bay. They were perfectly legal. They was in their rights. People denied you service in a bar, a restaurant. They was in their rights. Uh-huh. Well, they're not breaking the law. And you have to live during that time understand what's going on. It sounds harsh when you're living in 2012, but when you're living in 1963, like I was in 64, it's still right back, even though it was signed in 64, it didn't take effect in 1968. And so you've got to understand it. And then we did, and that that was the whole thing. So Vince Lombardi would not take any kind of guff. Vince would react the same way if he had a white wife or a or they would anybody else. They didn't,
1: you know, they didn't make it just well his, his he had a zero tolerance for racism and he felt right. as though any type of discrimination was wrong. Now Pete Rosell, you know, it was none of his business as to who Lionel or who anybody else was gonna marry. And to me it was like a, a racism thing for him to come in and try to stop something like that. At the same mm-hmm. time Rosell knew that there was racism going on in the NFL that he did nothing about. For example, the Washington Redskins and the St. Louis Cardinals had no black players at all. There was racism going on on every team because Jim Crow was alive and well, still is, and they had an unwritten quota for black players during the 50s and the 60s. There was no more than three, four, maybe five black players on each team in the NFL, and that's why most of the black players started going to the AFL back in the day because they wasn't being drafted by the NFL. Roselle knew that there was racism going on in the locker room with the Dallas Cowboys because Tex Small was a great writer for Sports Illustrated. August thirty first, 1970, before I got traded to Dallas, there was an article by Tex Small about the racism in Big D, and he talked about what was going on. So I'm saying to myself, this guy has to have an inside contact for him to mention that there were white players on the Dallas Cowboys who outright came out and said they didn't want to play with black players, and there was a lot of dissension because of the racism that was going on in the locker room between the black and white players, which was unheard of in Green Bay. And I had to face that before I got traded. I knew it was some racism and the stuff was going on in Dallas. And it was totally a different culture, a different locker room, a different coaching aspect. And Lansley never said nothing about it never helped us to get housing, uh, I had to move on the south side where all the black folks stayed. Uh, Lombardi said, we're going to do something about it and help us to get housing, because in 1961, we couldn't live in the city of Green Bay. We all had to live outside in the suburbs, De Pere, Ashwaubenon, a uh, little small towns because of uh, the Fair Housing Act hadn't been passed, which you just talked about, there in 1964,
2: 65, with LBJ. But, Herb, didn't Dallas have Bob Hayes and uh, Kelvin Hill?
1: When I got there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rayfield right uh, offensive offensive lineman. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got there on defense, Mel Renfro, Connell Green, okay. and uh, that was it. On the, the defense. And Jethro Pugh, they had three black guys yeah. on defense. When Green Bay, we had seven on defense. So in Dallas, they moved me to the corner, put Cornell Green at strong safety. Mel Renfro would have been the greatest free safety of all time because of his speed, his athletic ability to play free safety, and to help the cornerbacks. But Landry didn't want Mel playing free safety because he wanted Charlie Waters or Cliff Harris, two white guys, to play in that free safety. Now, Mark Washington was drafted out of Morgan State. Mark was a great athlete, and he was a natural cornerback. Mark could have played the right corner with the help of me, Cornell, and Mel And we would have had four black guys for the first time in the history in the NFL secondary, but Landry didn't want to get that in his legacy. He didn't want no parts of that. So in other words, Landry didn't want to put the best players on the field. You know, I think that it was, uh, he made the choices because uh, the color of the skin rather than uh, the contest of the character and athletic ability. And it cost him some games before I got there. And it cost some games while I was there.
2: down you know, there, I, I would they would have shot.
1: This, they would have shot Landry should, down there. Who were there?
2: The Cowboys down there. The real Cowboys would have shot Landry if he did that, wouldn't they?
1: Oh man, they were, I don't know what they would have done to him. I <laughs> do one thing: uh, the President of the United States got shot down there and killed. So you know, yeah. no telling what might happen.
3: Yeah,
1: and, and they were you know
3: what? They, what I uh, want to say is that. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to stop her, but a lot of this stuff is covered in our books. You want to read, you buy the book, the left side, you're going to hear the real skinny. And some of these stories that what's going on, what went on in Dallas, what it was like. And it's, uh, it's, I just, I like to just give you a little snippet so you buy the book. But I haven't told anything that I disagree with yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here's a story I heard. I heard a lot of there's a lot of stories going around and what's true or not. I don't like to say it's true because I can't prove it, but. When Vince got to Green Bay in 1959, there were only two African Americans on the team. And they were banned from going to certain bars and restaurants in the city of Green Bay. And the story I heard was the owners of all those bars were invited Vince to Vince's the office. They sat down and he pleaded case, which the typical case about, you know, we don't mind, it's my customers don't want to do it, blah, 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 blah. blah. And which Vince was supposed to report it to, said, listen, you bought, worked, earned those places, you, to your places. You can Serve or not serve anybody you want to. That's the American race. Wait, right? that's the American race. In fact, I'll go to war to defend your right to deny service to anybody you want to. And you have my word that as of this day, no black Green Bay Packers will be in any of your establishment. As a matter of fact, neither of any white players be there because you're off limits. And the people there, and I heard the guy say,
1: oh, "You can't
3: do that. It kills. We can't have any ball players in our establishment. You can't do it. I just did." And, uh, and uh, so what happened? As the story I heard was, the whole town instantly became integrated. This is before Herb got there. The instantly, they started allowing the black ball players to go where anywhere in Green Bay, restaurants or bars or anything else. And you know what? The, the thing I admired mind I was the body. There was no big papers, no big fans, no no no. And uh, way has to come in and march, or no no equivalent to a Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton coming in with great speeches. One man. Great quality in a room with seven or eight bar and restaurant owners. settled integrated the whole city of Green Bay in a matter of minutes. That's the type. That's the giant in this society. Vince is a great football coach. He was a better than average football player, but his influence on that city, his influence on the National Football League, and consequently his influence on America, uh-huh. far more than anybody than far more than people realize. You know, I I, uh, I I think the world. I think the world of Vince Lombardi. I really do.
0: Now, Dave, you're from New Jersey. Correct. How how different was Green Bay from Mount Holly Township where you grew up?
3: I, I, in, I, was, I grew up in Mount Laurel Township where the NFL films today, and it's in Burlington County. The difference in Green Bay and where I grew up is, uh, is uh, the, the, the big thing, old term the difference is night and day. When I had, the first time I got, the, uh, my wife came up with me and uh, we had got a little part, we rented a house two bedroom house, had two bedrooms, a living room, kitchen, and a bathroom. That's it. And it was wasn't much of a house. And the, my and my landlord told me, he says, I know it's not much of a house, he said, but it's probably a lot better than what you have to live in back in New Jersey. Every that's what I realized, people in Wisconsin didn't understand. They thought that every black person in America, filled up New Jersey and the East Coast, lived in the roach infested, eating paint off the walls they saw in the in the newsreel. We all lived in ghettos, and I told him, Frank, Frank Panger, I says, uh, "You know what?" I said, "Neither me nor my friends in New Jersey will live in your house." <laughs> and he, he, he was offended by it until so my wife took pictures and showed him where we lived in our neighborhood. They didn't. The people they weren't. I don't say that they're biased. I think they were on, un, on, un, uninformed. They truly felt because of the news reports they saw. There's no black TV shows or anything. No, no Cosby show or anything. They truly felt that every black person in the Eastern America lived in some form of ghetto, and, no. and, the, and as you know, it was never right.
2: No, I mean black culture back in those days was Amos and Andy. That's what they thought it was.
3: That's, that's it. That's exactly right. And 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 that that was what that's what the people in Green Bay felt. And, and I don't blame. I, I have no ill feel, will towards the people. I know they they not informed, but you know that was what it was. And I I I got one house one year because the lady the lady had an argument with the next door neighbor. She said, I'll get even with you. I'll rent the black. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, I wasn't the first who she rented another guy. I think it was Willie Wood. And then, and then Willie didn't want the house And it was just right for my family. I had, I had three children and we moved into it. And, uh, she became a real good friend and she told us the story herself many times. And she, she just never knew. She said she, she just apologized in that way and that was just it. But she really did it because she was mad at the neighbors. That was the way
2: it was. Herb, you you made the comment about uh, Tony Dorsett in the book, The Left End, you guys wrote that he was, as the media says, racist. Have former Cowboy players basically come after you and said he doesn't know what he's talking about?
1: Uh, Dave just mentioned about Bill Cosby and the Cosby show. I just want to say one thing. Bill Cosby and I grew up together in Philly, and he did the forward in the book. And uh, we're still friends right to the day. But as far as Tony Dorsett, uh, I didn't read his book. I don't know anything about, uh, what he went through down in Dallas because he came in 1977, uh, five years after I left. And Royce Boyles, he's the one that did the research, read the book, and he knows exactly what Dorsett said about, uh, facing racism the first time in Dallas and, uh, with the Cowboys. So I'm just hoping that not only Dorsett, but Hollywood Henderson or any of the other guys before me, during my time and after me, have something to say about what happened to them when they were there playing for the Cowboys.
0: Now, Dave, is it true? Yes. Your first year with the Packers, your your wife, wife was your your wife was not there.
1: Correct.
3: And uh, and she came my my second year. Uh, Elijah Pitts brought his wife in during the preseason, and she was the only African American woman in town except for. A couple of people came in, go-go dances primarily, and she couldn't take it. And she went back to Arkansas to, to student teach. The next year, I tried to explain to my wife that none of the black wives were there. And she should stay in New Jersey. And I come up to Green Bay. Her mother told her, said, uh, what was places with her husband. And I had to go along with that. And so she came up there with me. Once Pitt saw that my wife had moved in, he brought Ruth up. So Ruth, Ruth and Elaine, my wife, would really the first... Packer, black Packer-wise in the city of Green Bay. And what they went through was horrendous. I mean, first of all, they were young attractive young ladies. And every young black lady in Green Bay at that time, besides them, were usually go-go dancers or prostitutes or something of that, of that sort. And they were, they were approached every time they went downtown by the, by the farmers coming into the city for the first time. <laughs> and some of the things they said weren't always what they said but the way they said it you know what they said hello because they didn't think they are talking to a pack of wife or someone of some stature they thought they are talking to a low life go-go dancer or prostitute or something and in and, and the, and the tone of voice the, the, the those women came home both Ruth and Elaine came home many days upset with what they, what is going on downtown you know we were recognized downtown but our wives was a different story Herb, that's one of the reasons why I say that if the good Lord's will, and I get into the Hall of Fame in February, the thing that I will regret the most is the fact that my wife, who had passed away five years ago, six over six now, she wouldn't be standing there beside me, because she's the one who, to my opinion, was a real all Hall of Famer. But what she did, put up with, and always kept her family together. Herb, I can't say enough about it.
2: Herb, you mentioned that you knew Bill Cosby. You grew up with him. There is no character Herb Ab- Herb Adderley in uh, Fat Albert, is there?
1: <laughs> no, but Fat Albert was a guy that we grew up by the name of Bobby Martin. And uh, he came to Green Bay a couple times. You remember him, Dave? He was about 350. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he was a little special. Fat Albert? Albert, he grew up in the same neighborhood.
0: If he was that big, you should have had him play football.
1: Well, he did play in high school, but he kept getting heavier and heavier and uh, couldn't hardly carry his weight around.
0: Hey. <laughs> <So, laughs>
1: Hey,
2: hey, hey. So, Herb, Her, was there a guy in the neighborhood who wore, like, that uh, ghost mask in the neighborhood?
1: Man, we did all kinds of things in the neighborhood. And most of uh, Bill Cosby's act come from just natural stuff that happened in the neighborhood where we were growing up. Bill Cosby got started. He was a student at Temple University. And they had a, a stand-up comic contest uh, at a place called The Underground at Broad and... Walnut in Philly, and it was underground because he had to go down steps as if he was going down and get the subway, and they had renovated the place. And Bill Cosby was in there just because he wanted to be, uh, he always cracked jokes and being a funny man. And uh, I think the guy name was Steve Allen. He was doing The Tonight Show at the time, and he just happened to be in there, and he heard Cos, in there and then Cos got his break because the guy called him and said, look, why don't you come on the show? And that's when Cosby got started with his stand-up comic act, and uh, Fat Albert is still shown all around the, the world in different languages.
0: Cosby used to play football once upon a time, too, right?
1: Cosby was a four-letter athlete in high school, just like myself. And Who? we competed against each other. I went to a different high school. He went to Germantown High School. But we competed against each other in uh, track, uh, basketball, baseball. And we played on the same local basketball team at the Wissick and Boys Club. And it's a picture of us. Uh, Cosby was 16. I was 14. And we played on the same team. And it's a picture in our book and uh, points out Cosby and I being friends back in the day.
2: So who's faster, you or Bill Cosby?
1: <laughs> oh, man, I'll I, I tell you what. In high school, there was four guys, and all of us ran under a 10-flat 100-yard dash. But there were two guys that could run in the track meet, and I never ran the 100-yard dash my whole time in high school because we had a guy named Angelo Coria who ended up playing in the pros. <laughs> He ran with the Bears. We had a guy named Bob Brown who went to Penn State. Bob ran a 9-7, and we had a guy named Mike Cooper who ran a 9-8. I was the slowest runner, running a 10-flat, 9-9. So, uh, you know, Cosby, he didn't run any sprints. He, he was a high jumper and uh, a broad jump and ran on the relay team, 440 relay.
0: So who was a better basketball player, you or, or Bill Cosby?
1: Hey, I was all city in every sport. And I don't think was all city in any of the sports. Dave, I'm thinking he's a good athlete. He played halfback at Temple too, played football there. So mm-hmm. who's right.
2: who's got the Mike Ditka stories? Because here in Chicago, Mike Ditka is a, Mike Ditka is a legend.
1: Well, well, I know. He, 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 he,
3: he, I played it's like being at Penn State and Pitt was an arch rival. And uh, you know something, Herb said you may have missed, but he said he went to school because he wanted to get his education, and and the same thing I did. I went to Penn State for one reason. I went. I want to get an education, and my mother couldn't afford the seminary school. I only played football in college because that's the way I got a scholarship. That's the way I think her went there. We just want to get an education. I, it appalls me now when kids are coming out of high school talking about how they're going to, how they're going, what they're going to do with their bonus money when they sign in the National Football League. I never dreamt of playing the National Football League. Not, not that I thought I, was, in all of them, I just never had the desire to. I just want to get my degree and get out of school. In my sophomore year, Mike Dickett was an All-American in. And uh, in the Ten State game, I uh, went up against Mike and uh, had a decent game. I didn't, I didn't crush Mike, but but the thing was Mike didn't crush me. And uh, uh, the yeah. next year, Mike was NFL Rookie of the Year. And I said to myself, if he's the best in the NFL, that I can play with those guys. And not until the end of my junior year, after the after the NFL season was over, did I even think about playing in the National Football League. And then I only thought about going there long enough for the one to get married. I needed some money. I thought going there, play five years, get vested, and come out. And, and it, it was, the rest is all history. But that's it. And that and I don't think her. I don't know. I'm I'm not putting words in her mouth. Well, but I tell very much he went to college with the idea of going to pro ball.
1: No, I never, you know, thought about that. I'm like you. Know, I think about education. But uh my senior year at Michigan State, we played Pitt in uh, Pitt Stadium. And Mike Dicker mm-hmm. was on that team. Mike Dicker went both ways. He was a great athlete from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I was a running back, like I mentioned. And Mike Dicker was like a spy. He was playing linebacker and defensive end, depending on where I lined up. And uh he was hitting me on every play, whether I had the ball or not. So finally, uh, I think it was in the third quarter, uh, I told my man, Fred Arbanis, because he's a great uh, uh, tight end, too. He played for the Kansas City Chiefs. And I told him, I said, look, I said, the next time Dicker does that, I said, I'm, I'm going after him. He said, look, I'm with you. And so Dicker did it one more time, and when he was walking away, I hit him in the back of the head with a, with a, with mm-hmm. a forearm, and it started a brawl. Both benches emptied, and Mike Dick mm-hmm. and I both got thrown out of that game along with a few other guys, because coaches, everybody was on the field trying to break us up. The game was on national TV, my senior year in 1960, and the game ended up in a 7-7 tie. And from that day on, I had no uh, respect or love for Mike Dicker. And when he got with the Bears, it even lessened, because the Bears was you know, our most hated rival. And uh, Dick and I, we never forgot what happened at Michigan State in Pitt game. And we used to go on after each other when we were playing against each other in the pros. And then when I got traded to Dallas, we ended up being teammates for three years. And obviously, you know, we spoke and uh, never got to be great friends. He never invited me over for dinner. I couldn't tell you his wife's name. He never introduced me to her. So uh, it was no socializing or anything, but we got along, you know, and that's about all I can say about as far as Dick is concerned. You, you know, I'll tell you, it's something that's to you, too, in the uh... Penn State,
3: I let it my, my sophomore year and went on the basketball team. And the only reason why I led it on the basketball team was that Mike Dick had played basketball at the University of Pittsburgh. And Mike Dick in the first game against Penn State and, and Pittsburgh, he killed, he just dominated under the board. And uh, our coach at Penn State came, went to our coach, our Rip Rangel, who was just before Joe Paterno, and said, you anybody on your team that plays football, I can play basketball, and threw us. Uh, uh, Don Jones, and myself, went up, and I think uh, Bill Saw also went out to for, for the basketball team. And the primary reason was he wanted us to stop Dicker under the board, who killed him. And so Mike was a and Mike was a great basketball player as well as a football player. And and in fact, I thought when he made All American, he made it as a defensive end. He's a great defensive ball player, and uh, he, he was. A, well, we had we had to stop because if he lined up on the left side of the ball. And we ran a sweep to our left. He would come down the line hard and catch it from behind, and uh, and uh, and that was his forte. And we we set up plays just to stop Dick's defensive prowess. And uh, but so Ditka, I just, I, I he's, a, he's a big football player, I tell you. But hey, but like Herb said, he played for the Bears, <laughs> and that was it. That was it.
2: And I know Forrest Gray cannot stand Ditka to this day.
1: <laughs> I think I a lot of guys on that Packer team can't
0: can this <laughs> <day>. <laughs> That's right. Now, yeah. now, Dave, after the Packers, yeah. you played for the Redskins, yeah. who, as we've mentioned, historically had a very bad reputation uh, regarding yeah. race. What was it like right. playing for George Allen and being part of the Redskins?
3: It was by that time, it was entirely different. You know, uh Ben and Williams run the team, a uh, uh, um George Fester Marshall who was who was a defined racist. He admitted to being a racist. The one who said that there's not a black man in America good enough to play on his team. He said in 1961, and uh, and that's why when he, when he threatened boycotts and everything else, in in, in in the Washington Stadium, that's why he finally succumbed and went out and drafted Ernie Davis, and then traded Ernie Davis to Cleveland for Bobby Mitchell, who was mm-hmm. the first black to play on that team. Also, there's a rumor that George Howard denied to the day he died that there was a meeting one time and George Allen was there, too, where, where George Preston Marshall told all the owners, it's in 1932, he said, white people will not pay to see black people make money playing football. I'll show us how all, we can all make money if we don't have any blacks in the league. And you check the records, there were playing blacks in 1932, but in 1933, there was not a black player on any team in the National Football League, although they all denied that there was such an agreement written. It wasn't written, but was agreed upon. And it was no more until 1946, when the uh, Cleveland Browns uh, and also the, the Los Angeles Rams in the NFL and the Cleveland Browns in the AAFC and the NFL, the Los Angeles Rams integrated two years before Jackie Robinson. But it's really two. There's there's black. Then it was the lily white era from 33 to 46, and then it was the modern era. And, and and it came when it came back around all those different. Uh, myths about what black guys could do and couldn't do came around uh, because of Buddy Young they said black guys can run can be great runners but they didn't have the heart to play defense and then because of Big Daddy Lister they said well they can play defense and I spot up the offense and then you got guys like Jim Parker the greatest offense line I ever saw and you, you know, mm-hmm. and you got they said he couldn't play defense you got Herb Bradley and you got Willie Wood it's amazing you know, and Willie Wood was a quarterback a great quarterback at, at USC but it was no question when he came to the NFL he was going to play defense Dave you deserve but to be in the hall. Of,
2: Dave you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame and I know you're going to go in in 2013. I know you don't want to talk about it, but no, you're going to no. you're going to do it the right way. You're going to say it's because of what your wife did for you, your teammates, everything yep. like that. We talked to 81 NFL Hall of Famers and a lot of them have said some of these guys going in now don't understand what it is to go in the Hall of Fame. One guy in particular, Darryl Green, his acceptance speech says, "I belong here. I belong here." And they've turned yeah, off a lot that. of Hall of Famers.
3: Yeah. You know what I, I? You know I. My real first experience with the Hall of Fame was in 1963, the, the first year. And uh, talk, I used to have these little quiet conversations with Vince Cavalli, and Vince Cavalli was telling me how how much it meant to go there. So we were, but well, we were the first teams to play in the Hall of Fame game. And, and like I said, I, I loved it. And I don't even. He thought the Hall of Fame was that important that I thought it was that important. I started watching, it, and I tell you, I can't even put in words what it would mean to me as a person. As a professional football player to be in the Hall of Fame, it would be almost—I'd be almost—the thrill would be almost as great as I can mention because of the fact that Willie Davis on my right side was there, Herb Addley who had my back all the time was there, and there, and uh, and the Ray Nisky who I worked hand in hand with is there, and it just goes to say that we feel we had the best left side in the history of the National Football League, and and uh, the only thing is. We we have a Hall of Fame defense in the Hall of Fame corner, a Hall of Fame middle linebacker. I think we got to have an outside linebacker, there but you know it's kind of funny. All the great linebackers. In fact, Harry Carson said I should go in because LT is in, and he couldn't have done it without me. And Bobby Bell is in, and still is William in. But Ray Nishkin, and Dave Robinson, so he was split up. I can never figure that out.
2: Thank you so much but, for hey, your time,
3: you guys. Hey. Thank you. Thank you for
2: talking to us. No, no problem. And we're going to
0: tell everyone to buy your book, The Left Side. We'll look for Lombardi's left side in Canton, Ohio. Right. And every
3: (laughs) place. I tell you, you, it's a great great Christmas gift. It's just one super Christmas gift. I think everybody who has read it has told me they can't put it down. They love it. It would be a great Christmas gift and a reasonable, not cheap, just reasonable.
2: (laughs) We'll see you at the Hall of Fame next year. My only request is, could, could you get us in? The McKinley Grand, because I had to stay in a Super 8, and I didn't like that hotel.
1: <laughs> we didn't even to like that place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, another great show today with Dave Robinson and Herb Adderley. We went one hour. We weren't planning on
0: it, but oh, when two guys... You know, once they got going, all we had to do is just sort of sit here and listen. I
2: mean, I learned about race, about Tom Landry, about Ray Nitschke.
0: Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi. We learned about Lombardi's Left Side, the book that the two gentlemen wrote.
2: I want to thank our producer, Salman extraordinaire, Dave Olson. You're listening to Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com. And tune in again next week for another great show.